to see each one of you here today. If you're visiting our church and you said, I've just got to make it to Green Street Baptist because I need to hear that pastor, Pastor Brandon Ware, I'm not him. And so uh, you'll have to wait one more week. Come on back another time, and uh, we'd love to see you again. My name is Jonathan. I'm the discipleship pastor here, and it's a great privilege and an honor to get to share with you today from God's Word. I, I would invite you, if you would, are the kind of person that likes to go ahead and be where we're going, you can open your Bible to the book of Luke, chapter 24, this morning. We're going to be at the very end of that chapter, so if you uh, have got the last few verses there, you'll be ready to go. As I mentioned, I'm thankful for the opportunity to uh, to speak this morning. I know that uh, Pastor Brandon is, Lord willing, enjoying a great rest, uh, just at a time of, of being able to, to get some rest. And so I, I think we all uh, want that for him. We're thankful for him and his ministry. And, and as I said, great, great honor to get to speak this morning. Pastor Brandon shared on the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ as last Sunday was Easter. And I did have some folks ask me this morning, uh, where have I been? Because there's actually been two 11 o'clock services in a row that I haven't made it to. Uh, we did get a chance, uh, my family was on vacation two weeks ago. Easter Sunday, I had the great privilege of getting a chance to speak uh, at a combined service with our ethnic congregations and enjoy baptisms and leading communion there. And so I was not able to make it back in here, but it's a joy to get to be back with you uh, this morning. And so as we prepare to go into God's Word today, I would want to set that up just a little bit with a word of illustration this morning. So here we go. Let's dive right into that. Forty years ago in Albuquerque, New Mexico, there was a man running frantically around a gymnasium floor looking for a hug. This man's name was Jim Valvano, and the NC State Wolfpack had just done the impossible. They had beaten Phi Slamma Jamma and the Houston Cougars for, their, uh, for an, a national championship, an NCAA championship in men's basketball, and those who were watching could not believe what had just happened. Mike Krzyzewski was once quoted in saying, if you defined unbelievable, it was state beating Houston. Now, not only had NC State beaten Houston, but they had won the NCAA tournament that they had no business even being involved in at all. They had had a difficult season, and the only way they were even going to make the tournament was to win the ACC tournament. To do that, they would have to go through the likes of Michael Jordan and Ralph Sampson, and now all of a sudden through uh, what was, they were nicknamed the Cardiac Pack because of all these come-from-behind, last-second victories. They won the, uh, the ACC tournament, made it into the NCAA tournament, and even then, there was not much expected of them. One sports writer said it this way, that um, uh, elephants will drive the Indianapolis 500 and Orson Welles will skip breakfast, lunch, and dinner before NC State wins the NCAA tournament. Now, students, if you don't know who Orson Welles is, you'll have to look him up later, but he was a guy, while he was a great actor, he also enjoyed food. But NC State had done the impossible. They had won at the last second. Many of you have seen the highlight before of Lorenzo Charles dunking a basketball at the last moment. And not only had they gone through Chapel Hill and UVA, but now they had beaten the University of Houston and won a national championship that was totally unexpected. 
And those guys went through something together that hardly anybody outside of that group could understand. And what a tremendous victory they'd had. And as the years that followed uh, continued, Jim Valvano continued at NC State to be a coach until there was a book that came out. And this book had a great amount of accusations and criticism not only against NC State, but against Jim Valvano. He was accused of doing illegal things, accused of cheating, accused of breaking NCAA standards. And before they could even determine the truth of what those statements were, Jim Valvano was no longer the coach of NC State. And the school that had been through such an incredible ride was saying goodbye to their coach, and the two were separated. In 1993, the 10-year anniversary of that team that had shocked the world, NC State was gathering again on their campus in Reynolds Coliseum to be able to celebrate the team that 10 years before had done the impossible. And all that team was lined up to take part in celebrating, but as the crowd was there, there was a question whether or not Jim Valvano would be among them that day. You see, what had come out in the years that followed was very little, if anything, contained in the book against him was actually true. And they wondered whether the bridge had been burned forever, and it was too late to have Jim Valvano in their midst. Well, all of a sudden, the crowd thundered, because as they looked down, they saw Jim Valvano making his way through the line of people there at the floor. And Valvano came out to ruckus applause, and he began to hug the members of that 83 team, and he went down the line through the coaching staff and the players, Derek Wittenberg and Sidney Lowe and Thurl Bailey, Terry Gannon, Lorenzo Charles, and he gave each one of them a long hug, whispered words in their ears, and made his way finally until they handed him the microphone as well. Now, for those of you who grew up in that time or were around at that time, you might have remembered the gift that Valvano had of speaking, and he began to share not only what NC State and that team had meant to him, but also where he was at currently. Because while that crowd was celebrating that Jim Valvano had come home again, at the same time, they were preparing themselves to say goodbye to Jim Valvano for the second time, because Jim had been diagnosed with terminal cancer. And while he had begun work that still goes on today through an organization called the V Foundation for Cancer Research, his time was short. And he began to speak to them, and the crowd that was in the room that day felt this mix of joy and grief all at the same time. And they prepared for the second time that they would say goodbye to the man that they owed so much to and that they loved. Now, considering the humanity of what a basketball team could possibly mean to one school, I know I've got the state fans with me already. The Carolina and Duke people aren't quite sure how to feel so far. But if you would consider what it is for us to lean into the humanity of relationships today as we look at the ascension of Jesus Christ back to his Father, I want to invite you to turn your eyes to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. We're going to read from verse 50 and just read the four verses that conclude Luke's Gospel this morning. Luke chapter 24, beginning with verse 50. And then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. 
And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. Would you pray with me? Father, as has been saying so well this morning, may you turn our strivings into works of grace. Lord, would you help us to remember that because of Christ, before the throne of God above, we have a strong and a perfect plea. And so, Lord, would you allow us to hear not only the commission, but the blessing of the Lord Jesus this morning? Would you allow us to surrender? Would you allow us to worship? Father, would you help us to choose joy and to bless your name? We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The Gospel of Luke is what many of you might know as the longest book in the New Testament. It, It is not in terms of chapters, but in terms of words, it is the longest book. And from what we know about the writing styles and and devices of that time, more than likely, whether Luke was recording on a scroll or was recording in some kind of codex, he was quickly coming to the end of the space that he had. More than likely, as he comes to the final verses, he is having to conclude, even under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in a timely fashion. And it's not until Acts chapter 1 that Luke also writes where we get a more lengthy presentation of the ascension of Jesus Christ. It's there that we're able to see that as Jesus comes to the Mount of Olives, that place where a short time before, some uh, some days before, he had been at the base of that mountain in the Garden of Gethsemane asking his father whether that cup could pass. Nevertheless, not his will, but his father's will. And now, on the Mount of Olives in the region near Bethany, he is with his disciples, and Luke, in just four verses, draws to a close what it was like to see the resurrected Lord Jesus go to heaven and that interaction between his disciples and him. Now, when we read in the Gospel of Acts, we also see that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus commissions his disciples, that somebody comes up and they say, hey, um, Jesus is now the time you're going to go ahead and restore the kingdom to Israel? Then even after all that, there were people who still didn't get it. Isn't that encouraging that Jesus stayed the course and kept going even with people who just didn't get it as well as they should have? Matthew chapter 28, which is not at the ascension, but in a mountain in Galilee, we see that Jesus resurrected with his disciples. As he's speaking to them, the Bible says, but some doubted. That even the resurrected Lord standing in front of them wasn't enough for them to completely be rid of doubt. And then in Acts chapter 1, there was a political question. Because after all, we always have our own agendas that we're really hoping the Lord Jesus is going to do, right? Lord, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus, perhaps shaking his head, says, that's not for you to know, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so we know the commission from Luke chapter, uh, excuse me, from Acts chapter 1. We come to the ending of Luke's gospel. What Luke draws us into in that moment is the blessing of Jesus. I'm calling today a second goodbye, four key words for followers of Jesus. 
because the disciples had had one goodbye already where they had abandoned their Lord. Their Lord had suffered and died on a cross, but then rose again on the third day. And after that time, they experienced for a period of 40 days the resurrected Lord Jesus in their midst. Acts chapter 1 describes that to us and draws out so we're able to see this happened over a span of 40 days. And Luke tells us at the end of his gospel that Part of what was going on in that 40 days was that Jesus was opening the minds and hearts of the disciples so that they could understand the scriptures. And he's doing the same work today in our hearts and in our minds. That we might, through the power of the Holy Spirit, understand the truth that's been given to us. But Jesus then, standing on the Mount of Olives in these four verses, tell us several things uh, that are important for us as important or in many ways as, as, as coupled with and in, in importance as the resurrection, the ascension teaches us some very wonderful things. Jesus ascended to heaven physically, not just spiritually. I had somebody come up to me after the first service and said, you know what? Jesus was actually the first astronaut, not anybody in the 1960s. And they're right. Jesus physically went to be with his father. And there's hope, one, one writer uh, write, wrote some years ago, uh, that we see that in the ascension, God's hope is not only removal of his children from his creation. The hope of the, the ascension and the resurrection in Jesus' physical resurrection and physical ascension is that God is redeeming his creation for people to enjoy for all of eternity. That the hope of heaven is not simply a spiritual only soul, you know, riding on a cloud, playing a harp for all of eternity. No, the hope of heaven and eternity is the greatest physical understanding and experience we've ever had with our Father. And so Jesus is picturing that even in the way that he returns to his Father. Luke, even in a, in a chapter as long as Luke 24, describes the resurrection in a few verses and spends a long time talking about two men who were on the road to Emmaus. And in that, they were kept from understanding and recognizing who Jesus was until he broke the bread. And then the scripture says, and then their eyes were opened. Somebody opened them other than themselves. It was God who revealed that it was Jesus. And when Jesus disappears, they go back even as it's getting late to Jerusalem to tell the disciples, and then the Lord appears among all of them. And so we come then to the end of the 40 days and the time in which Jesus has prepared to return to his Father. And I'd like to just give four things this morning, if you're taking notes, by way of things we can gather. If there's four verses, we can do four bullet points, right? So we're going to give it the best shot we can. And the first is this, when we belong to Jesus, we have his blessing. When we belong to Jesus, we have his blessing. Then Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. We know that he's commissioned them. We read that elsewhere, but Luke tells us here that not only were they commissioned, not only were they commanded, they were blessed. Lifting up his hands, he blessed them. The word blessing that's here is a Greek word, eulogeo. It's where we get our English word eulogy. If you've ever given a eulogy at a funeral, a eulogy in its proper sense is the focused time on the individual who has gone to be with the Lord where we praise that individual, where we affirm the things that they did for others and for the Lord. A eulogy is a time of personal praise. 
And so the Lord Jesus, imagine the madness of this with 11 men who had run away from him, with St. Peter or, or Peter the apostle who had denied him. And Jesus is standing with all of them and he doesn't shake his head and go, oh, well, I guess this is as good as it's going to get. I'm not sure we're any farther than we were the first day, fellas. Some of you are asking me whether the political thing is going to come around. Have you not gotten that now after three years? Peter, what in the world were you thinking the other night? I told you you were going to deny me. All you had to do was listen out for a rooster, and you still did it. He could have walked through this long list. But we don't see that, do we? In John 21, we see Jesus with Peter saying, you know what? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Keep going. And here with the disciples as he lifts his hands and he blesses them, we, we have to think perhaps what's most likely is that he's blessing them in the common form of blessing that would have been for that day. We sang it just a moment ago from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. That's from the NIV translation of number 6. The hope for the disciples that God's peace and His grace and His shining face would be extended to each one of them. And they weren't able to do that or receive that because they deserved it. They were able to receive that because of what Jesus Christ had done. This whole standing and raising your hands and praying, as Jesus does in this moment, reaches back to the early moments in the Old Testament. One of them you can't help but think of is Aaron in Leviticus 9, that as he is offered the sin offering and the burn offering, he lifts his hands in order to be able to uh, bless the people. Now, we know that perhaps they weren't Baptists because they were willing to lift their hands, you know, just a little bit, you know, to do that. You know, the Scripture actually tells us 50 times as a point of command to lift our hands uh, to the Lord. I, I remember in the 1980s, growing up in that time period, uh, where there were ladies who felt like in, in some Baptist circles they could only lift their hands as high as their hair was. And so thankfully, the 80s allowed us to tease our hair up as far as we wanted, so some of them really tried to see how far they could go. But there were those raised up hands and the word of blessing. And perhaps in the disciples' minds, what comes back is the imagery from Scripture of Aaron having offered sacrifice for the people and now being able on the heels of that sacrifice to extend blessing to them. And as they perhaps lift their eyes and look at their master, as his hands are raised, there are nail scars in each one of them because of the blessing that's now been accomplished for all people who would come to him, not because of who they are, but because of what he's done. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. And so Jesus, in blessing, begins to speak to the disciples, and it's in that moment that he's departed from them. Perhaps with those same words from number six, the Lord bless you, the Lord keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you. When we belong to Jesus, we have his blessing. At age 16, a pianist named Andor Folds was already quite skilled. He was a Hungarian pianist, but he was going through a number of personal struggles that had him discouraged. 
And it wasn't long after that that one of the most renowned pianists of the day, a man named Emil von Sauer, was famous not only for his abilities, but also because he was a pupil of another famous piano player named Franz Liszt. And von Sauer requested that Folds, this young man, play piano for him. And Folds obliged, and he began to play the toughest songs that he knew. He played Bach and Beethoven and Schumann. And when this young man was finished, the older von Sauer walked over to him and kissed his forehead. And this is what he said, my son, when I was your age, I became a student of Liszt. And he kissed me on the forehead after my first lesson, saying, take good care of this kiss. It comes from Beethoven, who gave it to me after hearing me play. I've waited for years to pass on this sacred heritage, but now I feel you deserve it. Jesus Christ in this moment is passing on the sacred kiss of heaven, not because of anything that we have done, but because of what He accomplished alone. That He has become the bridge between God and man, the accessible way in whom we can now have blessing when what we deserve is condemnation. When we belong to Jesus, we've trusted in Him, we have His blessing. Valvano that day in Reynolds Coliseum as he began to share, talked about what it was like passing down the line of those guys that had been on that team and they hugged each other and shed tears, whispered words into each other's ears. None of them talked about basketball statistics. None of them talked about great defensive plays or shots. He said, as we went down that line, we simply said this phrase over and over again, I love you, I love you, I love you. I love you. I wonder whether the Lord Jesus did something similar. That the driving point that's coming home from this passage and extends to each one of us on top of even the disciples is this wonderful word of God that when we are in Christ, we have realized and received and can, can experience the love of God like no other. That the hope of heaven is that God loves us and God loved the world in this way that he sent his one and only son so that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. We belong to Jesus. We have his blessing. Jesus begins to ascend to heaven even in the midst of his blessing. Verse 51, he, parted, he was parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Verse 52, we read this, and they worshiped him. There's no delusions left about perhaps they thought he was a great teacher and they were just students of someone who was wise. That's not an appropriate place to worship. He was not simply a great prophet that they were excited to hear from and knew that he had come from God. No, worship is reserved for God alone. And so the disciples have the appropriate response of worship. You remember 1 Kings 18, whenever the fire from heaven comes and falls on the altar there with the prophets of Baal who had been trying for so long and only silence came. And then when Elijah got up and got down on his knees and prayed and said, Lord, will you please draw the, the hearts of the people back again? And fire fell down from heaven, burned up the offering and soaked up all the water that was there that everything was just blown into oblivion in that sense. And all the people immediately didn't have to take a class. They didn't have to see where the service program was at in their bulletin. They fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Worship is a response that's appropriate for us when we get a chance to encounter the goodness 
and the holiness of God. A.W. Tozer, the great author and pastor, said it this way, worship is to feel in your heart and express in some appropriate manner a humbling but delightful sense of admiring awe and astonished wonder and overpowering love in the presence of that most ancient mystery, that majesty which philosophers call the first cause, but which we call our Father who art in heaven. Worship is our response to encountering Jesus. There was a little boy who got down on his knees one night at bedtime to pray, and his parents were there with him listening to the words that he would say. And as he started to speak, he said, Lord, we had the best day at church today. Thank you for that. I wish you'd been there. Boy, those prayers of kids, they'll come to you sometimes, won't they? The great truth is that the Lord is here. The question becomes whether or not we respond in, to His presence or whether something else. Whether it's a means to an end, whether it's some sort of activity to fill ourselves with busyness, or whether our hearts will truly be inclined to respond to the Lord is a choice that we have. But it's in those moments where we're able to see the goodness, the holiness, the wonder of God, the grace and mercy and power of Jesus Christ, we're moved to respond. And in this moment, the disciples were moved in that same way as well. While he blessed them, he parted from them, was carried up into heaven, and they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Now, this week I read in one commentary this, this line, and I'll go ahead and tell you so you, just in case it makes a difference on whether you amen it, I don't agree with it. This is what one commentator writing on verses 52 and 53 said, the church no longer grieves. Jesus' final disappearance does not bring mourning and sadness. It brings joy and worship. You say, well, Pastor Jonathan, how in the world could you not agree with that? What kind of tyrant are you? Well, let me say this. I, I don't believe that that's a complete description. I don't believe that what this passage teaches is now grief and sorrow are gone and only joy is embraced. Because I think that the great challenge for us in our time as well is that we often are only willing to give worship and to have joy when every negative circumstance in our life has been removed. And can I tell you something? If Jim Valvano's players still cry over his loss 30 years later, can you even imagine what the grief for the second goodbye for the disciples of the Lord Jesus must have been like? Can we humanize this enough to not think of them as cartoon characters and to understand the fact that even in their joy of the hope that was in Jesus Christ, there was a recognition that he was leaving for the second time and they were walking through that. I wonder how many times in the later years of their life they thought, I just wish Jesus was here. And for you and for me, we will not find lasting joy and lasting peace in only saying, as long as the negative experiences of my life are removed, I can have joy and I can worship the Lord. You will not be able to have joy or to worship the Lord for very, wrong, very long if that's your stance. Joy, while as a fruit of the Spirit, is also a choice. 
happenstance and happiness go right together. We have circumstances that go in and out and move back and forth. The disciples were able to have joy because they understood ultimately the hope that was in Jesus, and that hope was great enough to conquer their greatest fears and sadness and loss and grief. The third thing I'd say today is the hope of Jesus overcomes our negative emotions, producing joy. Joy comes from someplace deeper than simply all of the circumstances in my life worked out exactly like I wanted them to. Everything that's going on right now is only good and only great. If if we wait for that, we'll be disappointed. Joy comes from an understanding of saying, despite what I walk through, the greatest challenges of today, Jesus Christ has me when I belong to Him, and I can walk and keep going forward. There was a Presbyterian conference that took place in the Midwest some years ago. And as people went in the doors, they were handed a white helium balloon. Now, for that branch of Presbyterians, they didn't go for saying things like amen and hallelujah too much. So they said, here's what you're going to do is we have this service today. When you find that time in the service where you are overcome with a sense of joy and you want to respond in worship to the Lord, we want to invite you to let that balloon go and just let it float on up to the ceiling as a show of the joy that is in your heart responding to the Lord. And so they began the service, and sure enough, as they went along, It wasn't too long before some of those balloons started getting released up into the air and floating to the ceiling. However, when the service concluded, over one-third of the people were still holding those balloons in their hands. Now, you may say, Jonathan, I don't think it's right for you to pick on Presbyterians. I'm not picking on Presbyterians. If they'd been Southern Baptists, more than half of them would have still been holding that balloon in their hands. Bruce Larson, who writes about this incident, makes a really quick and appropriate, wise phrase. And I would have it come down to each one of us as well. He says, let the balloon go. There's a choice in our hearts and in our lives whether or not we will respond and give God the praise that He is due. And when we don't, we are like people simply holding on to a balloon saying, well, it could get better. It could be if only it was this. I I don't know if I can respond right now. Bruce says, let the balloon go. The hope of Jesus overcomes our negative emotion, producing joy. Lastly, in verse 53, we read this phrase. And the disciples were continually in the temple blessing God. What an interesting phrase. How in the world can we bless the Lord? The last thing I'd say today, point number four, is that we can bless the Lord because He's first blessed us. We can eulogeo, we can eulogize the Lord, not in a funeral sense, but in a praise sense. There are times where we have to recognize the goodness of God for what He's done in our life, what He's done in human history. I don't know about you, but sometimes I just about have to take a sheet of paper out, get out of my pity party, and just write what God has done in my heart, my life, my circumstances, and what He's done throughout the pages of the Scriptures. And when we can't go anywhere else, we need to start there, blessing the Lord, praising the Lord. When we can, ble- we can bless the Lord because He's first blessed us. Oliver Wendell Holmes was a Supreme Court justice, one of the most well-known in our history. He was appointed by Teddy Roosevelt in the early 1900s 
and became a Supreme Court justice and maybe one of the most well-quoted and uh, remembered Supreme Court justices we've ever had. I always crack up when I think about his entrance into public life. His first experience with the federal government was actually during the Civil War. He was on the battlefield at a, at a high ground encampment, and they were under gunfire when all of a sudden he realized that a civilian was in their midst, and that civilian was standing up in the line of gunfire. And Oliver Wendell Holmes began to shout as a young man all sorts of derogatory things towards the man who, like a fool, was standing in the line of gunfire telling him to get down. It wasn't until after the battle, to Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr.'s horror, that he realized that civilian was Abraham Lincoln. But Oliver Wendell Holmes, later in life, became a Supreme Court justice, and sometime later in his life described how he faced a number of choices for what ultimately he would do with his life occupationally. And the two things that it came down to were whether he'd be involved in law in some way, or whether he would be a pastor. He sensed a call to ministry in his life. Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr., when he described it later on, said, well, you know, it really came down to those two fields, and what ultimately made the decision is that every pastor I knew carried himself like an undertaker. And I wanted no part of that. How wrong for it to be said of any of the church of Jesus Christ that our choice is not joy, but to seem like more sour people than the average person in the world. The hope of Jesus overcomes our negative emotion, producing joy, and we can bless the Lord because He's first blessed us. Whatever grief, whatever loss, whatever pain the disciples experienced as they got a chance to leave the Mount of Olives, having said goodbye to their Lord in one sense, but also knowing there was a path ahead to serve Him. They could continue to have the hope and the joy that He'd called them to, even in their grief, even in whatever pain uh, was there, and they could bless and respond to the Lord because He'd first blessed us. I don't think I've ever quoted Bruce Larson twice in any sermon, but I'm going to do that today. Bruce Larson also wrote uh, in one of his books about what it was like serving in New York City in, in ministry, being there downtown, a book called Believe and Belong. He describes working in New York City and from time to time as a pastor, counseling folks who were trying to decide whether they wanted to surrender their life to Jesus or, or whether they wanted to keep along the same path that they went on. And this is what Bruce, Lynn, uh, Bruce uh, uh, Larson describes. Often I would suggest that these folks and I walk down to the office building of the RCA Corporation on Fifth Avenue. In the entrance of that building is a gigantic statue of Atlas, a beautifully proportioned man who with all his muscles straining is holding the world upon his shoulders. Y'all have seen that before, right? This man who looks like the end result of any guy who goes to the gym the right way, and he's holding the world. He's straining under the weight of that world. He can barely stand up under this burden. I would typically say, now that's one way to live, but now come across the street with me. And Bruce would take them on the other side of Fifth Avenue where St. Patrick, Patrick's Cathedral was, and there behind the high altar was a little statue of the boy Jesus, perhaps eight or nine years old, and with no effort, he's holding the world in one hand. And his point was illustrated graphically. Worship or the failure to worship is a choice that we'd rather hold the world in our own hands. 
We'd rather be crushed under the load of that on our own back. We'd rather not surrender. We'd rather not give over. We'd rather not recognize that there's someone greater in control than us. A failure to worship is a desire to carry things that are not ours. And so while the truth of God is powerful, what is also powerful is how we respond to that truth. And like joy, worship is a choice. But you know what? I don't know that there are many things more motivational than sort of imagining in our mind what it was like for the resurrected Lord Jesus there having defeated death and hell once and for all to stand on the Mount of Olives and with those nail-scarred hands to lift them up. And his voice to the disciples while being one of commission was also one of blessing. And what great what a great experience it must have been to hear from the mouth of Jesus, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. Are any of you here today where you're convinced God's your enemy, you're convinced he's after you, you're convinced you can never have peace, you're convinced you can never let go of the burden you have, you're convinced you can't get out of this rut or that rut or this pit or that ditch. Some of you are here, you might be feeling that way. You need to understand the heart of the Lord Jesus because of what he has done, the blessing of all of Scripture and history is now extended to each of us when we will put faith in him. And so believers for once and for all in salvation and, or excuse me, for, we have placed that. For those who perhaps have never placed faith in Christ, that's your first step, to trust in Him, to allow Him in surrender to take what you yourself cannot do, cannot accomplish, you cannot be good enough. But for those of us who are in Christ, perhaps at times seeing that we want to go and to take the world and to put it back on our back, perhaps with hardened hearts, we'd rather sit back and just keep our safe distance from the Lord Jesus. Will you see his nail-scarred hands today? Will you choose joy? Will you hear the words of blessing that are extended to those who are in Christ? Now, we've done something a little bit intentionally today. I've tried to clear out, and this is hard for pastors to have enough space to say, you know what, I'm gonna end early because I especially want there to be people who during the time of invitation don't feel rushed. And that's what I've done today. You say, well, Jonathan, that's just all the material you had. Well, only the Lord knows. But we're going to sing that song that we sang just a moment ago and in just a few minutes. And I want to invite you today, you'll still get wherever you've got to go. Will you take a few moments to lean into the words of Scripture, to hear the blessing of the Lord extended to each one of us if we are in Christ, not a blessing of, uh, of somehow uh, uh, endorsing something that would be wrong in our life. Don't take that that far. But what I am saying is that God is for us, and there's no greater example of that than Christ. And the best place that you can be and that I can be today is at his feet. And so will we worship, will we take joy in the Lord? Will you stand together as we pray? Father, Thank you for the finished work of Jesus Christ, for the hope that is in him. Today, Lord, would you allow us, for those all around this room who are carrying burdens today, Lord, would you help us to hand them over? Lord, in the places in our life where we've waited for enough to move out of the way so that we could have joy, Lord, would you allow us to choose joy in the midst of any pain today? Father, where our hearts are hard and the balloon is clenched in our hands, Father, will you help us to let it go 
and to worship you this morning. Lord, may we hear the words spoken by you to our hearts today. In Jesus' name, amen.